This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal, and I'm Jess Khanam. And I'm Jamal Dejani. Well, Jamal, uh, we're bringing our show from our sheltered-in-place locations here in Northern California, but we're bringing our show today with a very heavy heart. Two days ago, there was a catastrophic explosion in Beirut. Over 150 have died. 5,000 are injured. 300,000 people, Jamal, are homeless right now. And the estimates today are over $10 billion to rebuild, attempt to rebuild what's happening. We're going to be covering that later in the show today, as well as a piece of Habarista coming out of the New York Times. But before we get there, we have a really quite excellent interview with James Zugby. And the real question, what about Arab Americans in the election coming up? Are there any really good choices? Well, you're going to listen to him. And actually, there has been since our interview, and he actually predicted it, some good news. As you know, uh, Representative Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib won handily. I mean, she did not just only win the elections, just uh, despite of all the rumors and, and attacks on her and, and so forth, uh, she won handily. And uh, also added to the her win, we should say, because that's part of the squad, Cori Bush. Right. That's another surprise. She, she was battling COVID-19. She was in uh, the hospital or in bed for at least two months because I saw her interview and she also won. So, so and, and also she's a supporter of BDS. So that's how I connected to Arab Americans uh, here. But uh, James Zogby uh, just talked about uh, the Democratic Party's platform. As you know, James Zogby supported Bernie Sanders. Right. And, and he is the president of the Arab American Institute and they conduct polls. His, his brother, John, is well known for the Zogby polls. So they pretty much have a very good handle on what's happening when it comes to elections and the sentiments of the Arab American community. Let's listen to him. The U.S. presidential election is now three months away. Millions of Americans have lost their jobs. About 160,000 people have sadly perished due to COVID-19. Polls after polls show presumptive Democratic nominee Joe Biden in the lead. We are also two weeks before the commence of the Democratic National Committee's convention on August 17, followed by the Republicans' Party convention a week later. We also have important primaries that involve Arab-American candidates, many topics to talk about this and more, and we have the right expert for you joining us from his shelter in place because he listens to science, the president of the Arab-American Institute, Dr. James Zogby, Welcome again to Arab Talk. Thank you, Jamal. I don't just listen to science. I listen to my children who would actually, it would be in the two columns, there'd be COVID death and there'd be murdered by your children. I would be in that column if I, <laughs> if I didn't behave. That, They've been taking really good care of me. Well, good, good for them. Uh, let me begin by some of the issues that concern Arab Americans and Palestinian Americans in particular. On Monday, July 27th, the Democratic Platform Drafting Committee 
voted on the party's 2020 platform, which outlines the party's ideals for the country over the next uh, four years. Again, and as in 2016, the DNC refused to acknowledge the reality that millions of Palestinians have been living under a brutal Israeli military occupation. They even struck out the word occupation from, uh, from the language of, uh, uh, of the discussion. And Palestinian-American delegates asked the DNC to recognize the equal rights of Palestinians to refrain from affirming Israel's illegal annexation of East Jerusalem and to support Israel as a state for all its citizens. This fell all on deaf ears, uh, uh, Dr. Zogby. And you recently wrote an article entitled Some Good, Some Bad in the Democrats' Platform on Israel-Palestine. I'm really more interested in the good because I'm not optimistic. I don't see it there. Has anything changed since 2016, or is the DNC going to continue to refuse to hold Israel accountable and recognize that Palestinians, that they too have human rights? Um, yes, uh, let me get to it. Look, I've been doing this since the first platform negotiations I was involved in were in 1988. Uh, we've certainly come a long way since then. Um, we're still about 30 years behind the times, but um, uh, I saw the piece uh, that was written by some of the Palestinian American delegates. Frankly, um, it's what I would want, but I know this process and you don't start in the process, you know, by demanding things that have no foundation in the process. Uh, you work with what you got. And this is not a policy statement. It's a test of wills. And frankly, um, unfortunately, Bernie had about 25% of the delegates, that's all. And so almost from the beginning, the other side was going to win. The question is, what could we get? And I think the most important get that we, that we achieved in the platform was in the 2016 language, there was a statement that the Democratic Party opposes efforts to delegitimize Israel, including at the United Nations and through the boycott sanctions and divestment movement, period. Uh, I know the language by heart because we fought so hard in 2016 <laughs> to change it. Uh, we wanted a comma and a First Amendment exception. Mm -hmm. um, this year, we pushed again, and we got it. Um, frankly, that may be the biggest achievement that we won, because the platform now reads, we oppose BDS, comma, but we respect the right, the constitutional right of every American citizen to free speech. That is the same as if the Republican Party platform said, we oppose abortion, comma, but we respect every woman's right to choose. In other words, the second clause nullifies the first one. What they're saying is essentially what the ACLU says, which is that every state that's passed an anti-BDS resolution, every college that's passed an anti-BDS resolution is in violation of the, of the Constitution. That was huge. Now, there were other language issues that came up. Um, there's a, you know, respecting um, the worth of every Palestinian and Israeli person. Um, we wanted some balanced language. We got that. There was an opposition to settlement expansion. First time they ever mentioned settlements in a platform. Can you believe it? Um, wow. But when we said, okay, you oppose expansion, you oppose annexation, you oppose, um, um, uh, you are for a two-state solution. But if you don't come out with 
language conditioning U.S. support for Israel based on its behavior, right, then Israel's going to continue bad behavior. They wouldn't give us on that. They wouldn't give that at all. And frankly, that's where the test of wills comes, comes in. They know, uh, we made it eminently clear to them, that public opinion is on our side. We made it eminently clear to them that realities in the region are clearly on our side. But they were afraid. They're afraid mm-hmm. in the same way that politicians everywhere get afraid of the myth of the power of, of the, the pro-Israel lobby. And the, in 1988, when I, I was lobbying with some of the same people uh, representing the Jackson campaign, they were representing Dukakis. They told me, if you put the P word in the platform, um, you'll destroy the Democratic Party. I told them at the time, don't play chicken little with me. The sky's not going to fall. We can, we can put the P word in the platform. The world's not going to come to an end. But they operate with this fear. I got a call right before this platform. Please don't try to amend it. Please don't try to bring anything up. Because if you do, the other side's going to make it worse. And I said, what are they going to do? Take away the First Amendment of the Constitution? I mean, how could they make it any worse uh, without embarrassing themselves? I knew it was a bluff, but it's, it's tough in this battle where we're new and they're the old guys. They're the ones who, frankly, I mean, I, I, people can now say, oh, Zogby's an anti-Semite, but they're the ones who are the big donors with them. They're the ones who have the long established ties in the party. And we're the new guys, still the new guys fighting. I think we're winning. I think that in the policy debate, we're winning. I think in public opinion, we're winning. But when it comes to the internal squabbling in the party, um, we're still the new guys and we've got, uh, you know, we, we, we've got more work to do. And frankly, I hope that people who run for delegate this year run for national committee posts in the party. I hope they become uh, members of the DNC so that we can continue that fight in the DNC and change the party from the bottom, bottom up. But uh, overall, I'd say, as I wrote in my article, there was some good, some bad, but we're 30 years behind the times. Now, does, does the leadership in the DNC see the shift to the left or the slight shift in the pendulum with the election of uh, the squad, Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and, and, and others? I mean, that, you know, more and more progressives are, you know, especially women and women of color are getting elected. Are they going to, is this moving their policy anywhere? It's already doing it. It's already doing it. Look, when, when Rashida and Ilhan were first elected, if you recall, there were whoops and yells about um, anti-Semitism, that, accusing both of them of anti-Semitism, in particular Ilhan for some comments she made um, about the Benjamins um, and uh, some comments that, uh, that, that Rashida had made. Um, so... When that happened, uh, you had about four or five members, uh, Jewish members, who proposed legislation um, to denounce anti-Semitism and BDS. I thought to myself, this is a done deal. You know, it's a slam dunk. They're going to get it because, you know, who's going to stop them? And this was a, just a horrible insult to Rashida Nilhan. It, didn't, it never happened. <laughs> the bill didn't get passed because the progressive caucus of the party blocked it. Because too many people knew Rashida and Ilhan and did not want to risk uh, insulting or hurting them because it was the wrong thing to do. 
And so these guys got frustrated because they wanted to do what they thought was going to be a no, no, no brainer. They just get it passed, couldn't get it passed. And what we've seen is that the very presence of these two women has changed the way Congress will operate. And these two women are now going to be joined by many others at the end of this, uh, the end of this election, mm-hmm. um, including Jamal Bowman. I That's hope right. including Cori Bush in St. Louis. I hope including Lulu Cycli in Texas. I hope, um, you know, and there are others, maybe Amar Kampanajar in California. I mean, the point is, is that the country's changing, the demographics of the Democratic Party are changing, and Congress is changing. Congress is, uh, in some ways, an, it's inverted uh, triangle, right? They're not the top of the heap, they're the bottom of the heap. Um, they're not the party that, that's not, they're not the place that lead the change, they're the recipients of change. And they, I remember during the anti-Vietnam protests, right? It took Pete McCloskey to defeat Shirley Temple Black Mm -hmm. for members of Congress to say, oh my God, you mean I could lose an election over this? And then all of a sudden you had members of Congress turning against it. Uh, Same with the civil rights movement. Most members of Congress know we're right. They're afraid right now to move and the fear is based on a myth of power Mm-hmm. that doesn't exist. Um, they couldn't save Elliot Engel. They're not going to be able to defeat Rashida. They're not going to be able to beat Ilhan. And when the myth gets shattered, you're going to see these guys running and saying, I'm with you, I'm with you. And it, it, it's going to change. It is, and it's already starting to change. Now going to the big uh, picture, the U.S. economy as it's as at its worst since the Great Depression Almost 160,000 Americans have died due to COVID-19. Trump is behind in the polls. Has this sealed Trump's fate? Or will we see a repeat of 2016 when all the pollsters and pundits that predicted Hillary Clinton as the winner had basically to eat their words? Mm -hmm. Um, Look, uh, I was not one of the ones who said Hillary Clinton had a slam dunk. Um, the number that bothered me most was when you asked the trust question and more people trusted Donald Trump than Hillary Clinton in that election. And I thought to myself at the time, how the hell could we have nominated somebody who was less trusted than Donald Trump? Um, I, you know, there's a lot of people say, oh, Bernie Sanders, people didn't support Hillary Clinton, or this is the reason why the, no, Hillary Clinton lost because she could not win the states needed. We never should have lost Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin. Never should have lost those states. Those used to be our states. But when you make a statement that Donald Trump is supported by deplorables, and you're talking about white working class voters who we have ignored for decades, we've ignored them. And I know that from within the party when I would raise a question during executive committee sessions about what are we doing to help go after white working class voters in those states, people who lost their jobs in the mines, people who lost their jobs in factories, and they'd say we're not throwing money away after them. Now, that's the reason why we lost, because we went after our base vote, but we handed Donald Trump an entire constituency that brought him over the, over the finish line in some key states. Sure, racism played a role. Sure, misogyny played a role. But how do you explain that Donald Trump was trusted by more voters than Hillary Clinton? That's shocking. Now, 
Joe Biden's in a very different situation. Obviously, I have differences with him on a range of issues, but uh, Joe Biden is trusted and uh, Joe Biden is liked. And Joe Biden still has the persona of being working class Joe from Scranton. He's going to win those white working class voters and he's going to win black voters. He's going to win Latino voters. He's going to win voters uh, that are the traditional base. And he's going to win voters that are the new base of the Democratic Party and build a majoritarian coalition. This is a very different election and it's very different polling numbers. Mm-hmm. And so um, I frankly think uh, that the thing we have to worry about is not the polls. We have to worry about Donald Trump doing something absolutely crazy um, or Donald Trump um, uh, doing something I think that will damage or fundamentally destroy our, our system of governance, which is not, I mean, I used to say that I didn't know what, and this is just a joke, but I used to say, I don't know whether to worry more about him winning or him losing, because if he loses, I would not be at all surprised if he incites violence. Um, um, and it could be a very scary scenario, but look, the GOP created this monster and the monster has devoured them. And now it's in danger of devouring the country. And um, uh, I think, you know, I, we have no way of knowing how this is going to turn out at the end. But what I do know is that Joe Biden has a healthy lead. It's a real lead. And he's a very different candidate than Hillary Clinton. Now, you mentioned uh, Bernie Sanders. And, and, and as you know, and at least this is not a scientific poll, but almost every single Arab American and Muslim American that I know voted or wanted Bernie Sanders to win. And, and so, and I know a lot of them are not excited uh, about Biden. Uh, Arab Americans can make a difference in states like Michigan, Florida, and other states, you know. Do you think they're going to go out and vote for Biden, or are they going to just remain at home? They better. They better go out and vote for Joe Biden because uh, uh, our children, our grandchildren, our country, our world uh, need to get rid of Donald Trump. And um, look, um, elections have consequences. Elections have consequences. And when I would argue with people in the community, they'd say, no, George Bush, whatever. I'd say, think of the world if Al Gore had won that election. Think of the world if Al Gore had won that election. You know, um, think of the world if Donald Trump hadn't won that. I mean, Hillary Clinton, I mean, hold your nose and vote for her, right? I did. Mm-hmm. But, and I knew her personally and I had grievances with her personally. But the bottom line is she would have been a hundred times better. Would we have had differences? Absolutely. We would have. Would we have fought with her? Absolutely. Can't even fight with this guy. Because people elected a crazy person, a dangerous, dangerous, crazy person as president of the United States. Elections have a difference. If a stone or a ham sandwich were on the ballot, I'd encourage people to vote for the ham sandwich or the stone. Do not waste your vote or do not waste your opportunity to vote by either not voting or voting for a third party or something like that. We've got to get him out. And the only way we get him out is by electing Joe Biden. Look. I learned a long time ago from Julian Bond, who I worshipped, and I remember when John Lewis was being buried and all of the, the, the ceremony around it, um, 
I actually worked for Julian Bond in that election when he lost to to John Lewis. I think he would have been one of the greatest members of Congress, um, a truly principled and decent man. In 1988, at the Democratic Convention, uh, he led the fight to integrate Southern states um, delegations. Then he turned around and he was one of the leaders in the fight to get the uh, Vietnam War condemned by the party. He lost both. People nominated him for vice president to run against Ed Muskie. He wasn't even old enough. But I, the pictures of that convention, remembering that grown men um, standing on their chairs chanting Julian Bond, Julian Bond, and, uh, uh, and then daily called the cops in and beat up delegates mm. who were supporting Bond. And the last night of the convention, um, Muskie gave his speech and Humphrey gave his speech. And Julian Bond comes out from behind the stage and reaches both hands and holds them up uh, as a sign of unity. And um, I got to know Julian years later, about four years later. And I said, why'd you do that? You broke our hearts. You broke our hearts. And he said, look, Jim, um, there are two kinds of people. There are people who sit up high on their pinnacle of, the, of their, the, your prominence. And they say, uh, I'm not getting involved with the muck of the world because it's, it's too dirty and it's not pure enough for me. I need it to be pure before I get involved. He said, and then there are people who get down in the muck and say, I got to make it a little bit better because people are counting on me. He said, I'm with that group, not with the other group. He said, at that point in time, it was no longer Julian Bond versus Ed Muskie or Julian Bond versus Hubert Humphrey. It was Hubert Humphrey versus Richard Nixon. There was only one choice to make. And I summarized it back to him. I said, elections, in other words, aren't about the choices we want. They're about the choices in front of you that you got. This is not like I'd rather have this candidate or if only that one were. This is Trump versus Biden, period. There's only one choice before us. If you care about anything, there's only one choice in front of us. And, and you got to make it. I know your organization for many years, you've been working on getting out the vote, uh, educating especially young Arab Americans. The Arab American Institute, you have this campaign, Yalla Vote, you know, let's get out and get, get out and vote. Are you making headway? Are you seeing change uh, with uh, the new generation? Uh, oh. you know, my biggest fear always is, is that people complain and, and shout and argue. And then you ask them later on, did you vote? And they say, no, I, I didn't go out. Uh, look, when we started 1985, I got an emergency call from Dearborn, Michigan. Somebody there said, you got to come. The guy running for mayor has just sent out a tabloid newspaper to every home in, in the city saying what to do about the Arab problem. Um, and headlines were like that big across the top. It was all about they're dirty, they don't share our values, they're ruining our way of life and they whatever. It was really insulting. I went up there and gave a pep talk to the community. And uh, next day we went over to look at the voting rolls and take a look and go through them. We found we had something like 700 registered voters out of 19,000 people. Wow. Um, so we started a voter registration project and we helped fund it and we provided staff. Um, uh, it was 1996. Uh, we had an event for the Institute and the mayor, the same guy who ran then came he had the maspaha of the city uh, that he gave me as the host of the event, uh, spoken Arabic, 
my dear brothers and sisters, he said, uh, he knew how to count because at that point we were up to 7,000 voters. And today there's like almost 14,000 registered voters in that city. And the president of the city council is Arab American. And the majority of the, um, uh, the city council are Arab American. And the state senate, state representative representing Dearborn is Arab American. We've made a huge impact in that community. As a community, we've done it. And same in Patterson, New Jersey. Same in cities across the country. You got mayors out there in California who we wouldn't have had a generation ago. And they are proud Arab Americans and they work together as part of a, I mean, look at the Yemeni community and the progress it's made. Uh, and they now have Yemeni American elected officials in just one generation. Um, so yeah, look, it changes never like that, you know? <laughs> and it doesn't also happen uniformly, right? Um, it happens in fits and starts, and sometimes this is a little ahead and that time that a little ahead. So yeah, there's gonna continue to be people who aren't registered. There's gonna continue to be people who say it's haram to vote. There's gonna be people who say, I got no reason to vote. But overall, the progress we've made is enormous. And uh, I always tell people, if you wanna know where you are, look at where you were. And that'll give you a sense of where you're going. We used to be here, now we're here, and we're gonna be there because the trajectory for our community is, is a very bright one. Well, on this positive note, I want to thank you and, uh, for coming on Arab Talk, and uh, we're excited to have you on, and hopefully we'll talk to you soon. Hopefully, at some point, we'll talk to you in person when this whole pandemic thing just uh, goes away. I don't know how long it's going to take, but thank you again. Thank you very much, Jamil. We go way back, me and you. That's uh, right. The old TV day. So I'd, I'd love to do whenever you want. Just give me a call. I'd love to come on. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's the, the voice of uh, James Zugby. He's the president of AAI, the Arab American Institute. Um, I think it's going to be a raucous uh, uh, election year. And for Arab Americans, Jamal, I mean, we, we have said this before, and I think uh, uh, Zugby pointed this out. We're a very diverse kind of electorate and to pigeonhole Arab Americans as being one thing or another, really, uh, you, you won't get it right in terms of what appeals to Arab Americans. But his interview did reveal a lot of very interesting, you know, perspectives. Well, the message also, which also I've, uh, you'll see that, you saw that within the interview, the AAI, uh, they've had for several years a campaign called Yalla Vote, or right. Get Out and Vote. That's the message to Arab Americans. So the message stays the same. Is It's very important. I think he said something very telling, and he said, listen, I voted for Hillary Clinton the last election. Sometimes you have to hold your nose and vote because the options this year, there are no options. It's either you're going to get stuck with Donald Trump for four more years. You may not like Biden, but you got to get out and vote. So that's the message. That's a really important message. I, unfortunately, am not a big fan of that message. I understand it completely. I do feel like, you know, voting for Biden with someone who says, He's proud to be a Zionist, even though he, he, you know, his infamous quote, Jamal, that we've said many times, you don't have to be Jewish to be a Zionist. And for somebody like the, uh, uh, Biden and his his platform 
committee coming up with such a, I won't even call it a weak statement about Palestine. It's really a disrespect, disrespectful and antiquated kind of perspective on uh, the democratic platform on Palestine. You know, it's it's going to be a tough slog for a lot of progressives and a lot of Arab Americans this year. It will be. It will be a tough choice. Unfortunately, we have limited choices. I think now the objective is getting rid of Donald Trump. I think people hopefully they'll understand this message. But anyway, I want to move on to the next topic, which is really important. It's actually a very sad topic. Yeah. Sad, sad for both of us. Uh, we know a lot of Lebanese uh, friends. Uh, been to uh, Beirut several times, and 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 the big news, of course, is the horrific explosions that shocked and rocked uh, Beirut. Uh, the explosions in Lebanon at a warehouse in the port of Beirut, and as you said, the numbers now are staggering: 100, 160 people dead. More than 5,000 people injured. A lot of people are homeless. No, 300,000 people are homeless, Jamal, at least. And there's still hundreds and hundreds of people that are not accounted for yet. Yeah, and the Lebanese officials have promised investigations and accountability. <laughs> what a uh, joke. For, for the 2,750 tons of ammonium nitrate. 2,750 tons of ammonium nitrate. Do you know how many um, nuclear bombs that equates to? I mean, if well, you think about well, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and this is the 75th anniversary of those horrific nuclear bombs that the United States dropped in Japan, are by comparison in terms of the strength, what happened in Beirut is much bigger than what happened in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Jamal. Well, uh, not really. It's, not, it's considered the third most powerful explosion after Hiroshima and Nag Nagasaki. I mean, it was very hard, but I don't think it was as much. But just to give people an idea, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, the federal building in Oklahoma... Remember right. that people forgotten, have forgotten about this horrific explosion there uh, by uh, Timothy McVeigh and, right. and, and his accomplice at the time. They've used a truckload. Maybe they said about six barrels right. of, of this material or something similar to that. Six barrels. 2,700. That's a, an entire hangar. It's like an entire warehouse. So, no. so the yeah. explosion was felt all the way and heard in Cyprus. No, yes. pe that's right, Jamal. People were saying that they felt or heard the effects over 100 miles away from this bomb, Jamal. It's truly staggering. And when you look at some of the reports of windows and buildings being destroyed miles away from the, uh, the detonation site, it's truly staggering. And just to give our viewers and our listeners a little context, what happened is that some fireworks and a fire had started in this warehouse. Some people had their cameras on it. And sometime between the fire and the fireworks going off in the warehouse, there was this mushroom cloud where the ammonium nitrate exploded. And the, the video and the pictures from that, Jamal, are just 
devastating and catastrophic in terms of what happened. And we will talk that uh, we also have a lot of conspiracy theories flying around. I mean, the of investigation course. is still happening. And I'm going to talk about actually uh, about the, um, f- uh, the conspiracy theories. But first, let's talk about the Lebanese government. I, I think Lebanon is a failed state. Okay? Of course it, has it is. It's been a failed state for many years. It's not that different from Syria as a fa- failed state. Libya is a failed state. And although now uh, some of those port officials have been put under house arrest, still unclear, uh, you know, how they're going to proceed because who's behind these port offic- uh, officials? Who are they supported? You know, Lebanon is a very sec- sectarian country, as you know that. So, uh, so there's a major, major corruption. This shipment has been sitting in the warehouse for more than six years. Imagine, it's like you're placing a nuclear bomb in the middle of San Francisco, in and a just, warehouse, and, uh, right and just, at, at Fisherman Wharf. And letting it sit there. And just waiting. So, so for six years, it has been sitting there, and you hear different stories. It was brought by a Lithuanian ship sometimes, and somebody else known it was on its way to, to Africa, and all kinds of stories that it was basically confiscated by the Lebanese government from a ship and, and, and put there. But for six years... You're putting basically a time bomb, right. a time bomb until something happened. Now, uh, well, a few things. People are really angry. Uh, we've had, uh, you know, on our show, guests from Lebanon before, and they've expressed their anger towards what the, the condition there, mostly because of the economical condition. I mean, every day the Lebanese lira is devalued, Banks are not allowing to draw money, are not allowing their customers to withdraw money more than a couple of hundred dollars like per week or something ridiculous like uh, like this. Uh, The garbage has been mounting in the capital of of Beirut. People are unemployed, high unemployment. And to add to this COVID-19, which uh, they're just not dealing with it, uh, you know, I, I cannot brag on this because also in the United States, as you know, uh, the, our government has not been dealing with it uh, properly. And in, in Beirut, there is a whole confusion. To add to this, the refugee uh, crisis with the Syrian refugees, Palestinian refugees, uh, Israel, Israeli incursions all the time and attacks and kind of Israel owns the skies over, over Lebanon. That's right. And then, of course, now uh, I was like seeing actually politicians going to some of the devastated neighborhoods. I've been watching several uh, Lebanese TV outlets, Future TV, and uh, the New TV, and others. And and politicians have been yelled at, chased, chased away. The 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 minister of, uh, of justice, she was basically chased out of a neighborhood that was devastated. Right. And here comes now. French President Emmanuel Macron, which I think this is, again, that's related to this whole colonial mentality, because not a single Arab leader has visited Beirut thus far. Of course. To help. Qatar is sending a team. uh, They're sending some supplies. But so the first leader who comes to visit the old colony is the French President Emmanuel Macron, he got mobbed by an angry crowd as he arrived in the airport on Thursday to meet with political leaders, basically dictate terms like this is what you have to do, whatever. And uh, I heard uh, 
yelling in Arabic, uh, people were yelling at Macron in Arabic. One woman accused him of meeting with warlords and his meeting with corrupt politicians. So you can see the picture. It's a whole big mess. And I really feel sorry for our brothers and sisters in Lebanon. You know, at the time of, of we have a, a global catastrophe right. with COVID-19, with high unemployment, and they've been suffering from high unemployment to begin with for years. Now they can't find jobs. Their money is devalued. Uh, they have no control over their borders. And now, the, like the whole harbor area, which I've been to it many times, has been destroyed. 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 Yeah. And people and, have died. Yeah. Jamal, it's a, it's a tragedy. And um, the scale and scope of this tragedy is unbelievable. You did a really excellent job kind of enumerating the context. I mean, not even without this catastrophic bomb that exploded, you know, in Beirut, Lebanon, as you said, and I agree completely, was already a failed state with so many problems already on its doorstep. Adding profound insult to an already injured country is this bomb attack, which completely, you know, it, it, it's killed over 150 people, you know, 5,000 people injured, hundreds of people missing, 300,000 people homeless. But here's the thing, you know, the infrastructure I saw an interview with a doctor who's treating some of the people, you know, in Beirut right now. And he said, our healthcare system was already overtaxed and not able to cope with just everyday health crises because of COVID and lack of support. So you, you, you have a healthcare system that's already been, you know, taxed to the max. And on top of it, you have this. I think failed state is a way to put it, Jamal. And uh, you, we can have all the can you know conspiracy theories that we want, you know, and I, they're out there. I don't want to give credence to any of the conspiracy theories because really it's been for decades and decades and decades that Lebanon has been part of this proxy war that has been going on between all these different interests in the Middle East, and as a result, the people of Lebanon have suffered. And as a result of this, they will suffer even more. It's absolutely a failed state right now, Jamal. It's really catastrophic. To add soul to injury, uh, Jess, and, and this is something ridiculous, and I actually I've, I wrote about it and posted something about it on, on Facebook, which has like tons of uh, comments. Yeah, the I know Israeli, where you're going. Yes, Israeli yes. mayor uh, in Tel Aviv posted the Lebanese flag, uh, like to show sympathy. Like how as insulting! If, as if people suffer from short-term memory, and the 2006 invasion of Lebanon and destruction, basically of half the infrastructure in Beirut, in spe specifically destroying bridges and buildings, like and buildings that were, and killing uh, hundreds of people, and then the massacre of Kana, where they've massacred children. Like this 
is we're you know we're supposed to forget about this not to mention of course the occupation of the Shiba farm and the and the and the occupation of South Lebanon in the past right. like you know this is like you've mentioned the word Hasbara this was like the the Hasbara with a capital H uh, to to show oh you know we could help and whatever it's like you go and massacre people left and right, and now you offer a band aid to say, "Oh, I can help you out." It's really insulting. was disgusting and insulting. That's yeah. that's the first thing I have to say, and and everyone in Lebanon agrees. I mean, no one fell to this kind of uh, game. I mean, Israel violates Lebanese sovereignty on a daily basis. Israel has killed more children in Lebanon, I would say, just compared to that, to Gaza, you know. That's right. And, and then now to try to say, oh, uh, we can sell, sell, send you some uh, medical supplies. Well, uh, the Lebanese said thanks, but no thanks, by the way. Yeah, but it's an example of Israeli arrogance, Israeli ignorance, and Israeli Hasbara. Because, you know, in fact, in fact, they don't care about Lebanon, and they don't care about the people of, the, of Lebanon, but what you're going to see on the on the news, the national news in the United States, not in the Arab world, but in the United States, you're going to see, I guarantee you, uh, coverage of the fact that the Israeli government is sending whatever they're going to send or try to send, you know, to the people of Lebanon. You know, the people of Lebanon are are are, are right to tell the Israelis to go shove it. You know, where the sh- sun doesn't shine about their, you know, their supplies that they want to send. You know, after how many times has Israel bombed Beirut? How many times have they bombed the south of Lebanon? How many women, children have they killed and massacred over the years? It's, um, it's, you're right. It's, it's, it's salt on the wound and it's very disturbing. Which- and it's, it's, it's like Macron. The old colonialists going there and and trying to dictate terms of uh, financial servitude to the Lebanese uh, at a time like this. Um, I think Arab leaders were probably a little smarter, Jamal, in thinking that this is probably not the best time in the world to go and dictate to the people of Lebanon. Which, by the way, also we should also men- mention that the the former MK Phelan, you know, posted the Israeli uh, uh, former. Uh, member of the Israeli Knesset, he was rejoicing. There is a whole big article about this. Okay, yeah. so you could, you, could, you could see this hypocrisy, you know. It's kind of like a response because like, there were many people in Israel rezo- rejoicing who, who are followers, especially those uh, illegal colonial settlers there. And then talking quickly about the conspiracy theories, uh, the Israeli media was uh, very busy trying to pin this on Hezbollah. You know, not uh, you know. Now we know it's really a failure by the Lebanese government. You know, right. so they were trying to kind of drive that wedge between the different sects in in Lebanon. That didn't work. And of course, other things, conspiracy theories. People said that they saw a bomb falling and a missile work uh, falling, and then the confusion about that this was a firework. Uh, factory because uh, the early sparks that you've mentioned that all had been debunked including someone I saw circulating a claim uh, that um, you know that the mushroom that we saw that there was like a small atomic bomb by by the way a verified account on Twitter with over the over uh, hundred thousand followers which by the by the way 
racked up thousands of shares and likes before uh, it got deleted. You know, yeah. so, so people have to be very careful. We and, have to get and, over these conspiracy theories, man. And make sure that uh, let's get all the facts. This is what we know so far. We know what happened so far. We don't know all the details. But one thing we know is the devastation it has created. I do, I, I do want to just say one thing, though, because I think we absolutely need to debunk the um, conspiracy theories, Jamal. But one thing in the larger context, it is part of a larger Israeli, U.S. interest to have as many failed states in the Middle East and in the Arab world as possible. This, tragically, for the people of Lebanon, really makes the possibility of Lebanon ever becoming a fully functional state for all of its citizens less likely for the foreseeable future. Well, we can go can go back to what Condoleezza Rice said. Yes, it's the U.S. policy to keep states, you know, marginally failed throughout the Middle East. That's the U.S. policy. And it, so we, yeah. So we have a few minutes because uh, left. I want to go to the last thing that we have, um, you know, to talk about. Speaking so of habaristas, uh, husbaristas, the time flies, is uh, your favorite uh, writer, Brett Stephens, in the New York Times. That was disgusting, Jamal. About it. Well, Brett Stephens has um, run into a lot of controversy uh, over the years. He's the token conservative opinion writer for the New York Times. And uh, he's come under repeated attacks over the years for... Um, the columns that he's written, many of which have either advocated, you know, completely racist um, or unsubstantiated uh, claims over the years. More recently, he's published this book about Jewish genius, the genius of the Jewish people, in which he cited literature uh, that has been roundly criticized as being openly racist, yet he cited that in his book. So here we go, Jamal, with uh, Habarista Brett Stevens, and he writes this op-ed in the New York Times at this time talking about how the one-state solution is basically a fantasy and that basically we all have to you know, understand that the only solution for you know, what's happening in Palestine right now is the two-state solution, the, the classic Habarista you know, kind of attitude, you know, Palestinians have to accept that they will never get the right of return. He says that they will have to give up on land rights. They have to give up all these rights. It's the typical, I won't even say habarista, it's the typical colonial mat uh, attitude written and supported by the New York Times that oppressed people just have to accept being oppressed and accept their fate. Frankly, Jamal, it was uh, painful to read this. It was... Uh, you know, done in some sort of, I feel, attempt for Brett Stevens to try to rehabilitate his image, which has taken a big hit. He's been roundly criticized. And this is a typical thing, right? When you run into the prob problems, you run into the bosom of APAC. You run to the bosom of pro-Israel uh, colonial settler uh, media outlets. And I think this is what Brett Stevens was doing. It was the silliest uh, weakest argument article I've read on this on this topic. 
and you could look through it. It just like was it was so transparent, ignorant uh, that ignorant, like almost like it it came from APAC, like was dictated by APAC, and it was a knee jerk reaction to Peter Beinart because the leadership at APAC and their surrogates. Uh, have been panicking because you have people like Peter Beinart, you have others who are, have been now advocating right. for the one state, and they're saying everything that has been done before has failed, have, uh, and also there is apartheid on the ground, and, and people are panicking. And then I'm, I'm quoting here, I, I saved this quote from him, and he's, and he's talking about Amos Oz. Amos Oz uh, uh, was the founder of, or one of the founders of the Peace Now movement. And he's saying, I heard Oz tell the story many years ago. And anyway, I don't want to even get into Amos Oz, because he was also, had a lot of problems with Amos Oz reasoning. He was... Uh, he was in the Israeli Air Force, by the way. Right, uh, and a Zionist. You know, so, so he's talking about, uh, about uh, you know, if Norwegians don't want to share a state with Swedes, if Scots may not want to share a state with the English or Catalans with Spaniards, then how can anyone imagine Israelis and Palestinians with rivers of blood between them joining hands? in a common political enterprise. It's so that's, disturbing. That's his big argument, which, by the way, this uh, statement was said by Amos Oz years ago, and he was never an advocate for a, uh, a equal rights for Palestinians. He just said, just like give them like some areas to control, by the way, the same mentality, even though he said peace now. Peace now was for him was like on the basis of 1967. Right. And nothing has to do with the Nakba and, and the thousands and millions of Palestinians now, there millions of their uh, children and grandchildren who have been made refugees. They cannot go back to Haifa. They cannot go to back to Akka. They cannot claim their homes. And they should just like go to the, to the West Bank. So this is Amos Az argument. They don't talk about yeah, you have a one-state uh, uh, scenario where uh, everyone shares equal rights, like Canada, which is north of our border. You have Belgium, you have Switzerland, you have other examples. He uses the examples, which, by the way, you know, don't make any sense because, and this is the important thing, the Palestinians did not go to occupy Israeli land. Thank you. Okay. So it wasn't, uh, Palestinians did not come from Russia, Poland, Germany, Eastern Europe, Brooklyn, New York, and parachuted into, into an entity called Israel and decided to carve a big piece out of it, even though supported by corruption within the United Nations and pressure in 1947. We can go about, talk about this. This didn't happen. There were, when he talks about the example of the expansion, the, 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 the Spaniards' expansion into Catalonian territory, that's a whole different thing because those were separate entities, okay? Right. And, and, and it's not, you know, he's not, he, these are, Palestine is a, is a colonial, basically, project. Yeah, Israel and I, and breaking news expansion for... Expansion into, the, into right. the West Bank or even, uh, even uh, during the Nakba, the history is there. He knows. I'm sure he has a copy of the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. Has there are many writings about the whole concept of the creation of the state of Israel. And last but not least, guess what? My father holds the passport. God bless his soul. And the passport says Palestine. Thank you. And so there was a period when there was a Palestine, 
And the last mayor in Palestine was a Jew, a Jewish Palestinian. That was before 19. So there were mayors in Jerusalem, the city that I grew up in, who were Christian, Muslims, and Jews. In fact, there were the Janis from my family who were mayors. So the last mayor was a Jewish mayor during Palestine, be, albeit under British control, the mandate, but, but, but so anyway, I'll stop right here. No, but Jamal, I think this is an important point, and I have breaking news for Brett Stevens. There isn't apartheid in Norway and Sweden. There isn't uh, apartheid between Scotland and uh, Britain right now. So um, the analogy that Amos Oz uses and Brett Stevens decides to lift and use as his main argument doesn't hold any water, doesn't hold any historical significance, and it's it's made an, in an attempt to cast the Palestinian question as if it's the same struggle that Norway and Sweden went through when it's not. So shame on Brett Stevens yet again. Shame on the New York Times for producing yet another piece of Israeli habaresta in its opinion page. And we don't have time to talk about it today, Jamal, but the opinion section of the New York Times has been going through a massive uh, overhaul right now. So I guess we shouldn't be too surprised to see that Apex influence there continues to be strong. Well, on this point, Jess, we're running out of time as usual. And so I want to thank our uh, listeners on KPO San Francisco 89.5 FM and our viewers on Facebook and on YouTube. And we will talk to you and see you next week. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.